We are continuing in the lectionary um, today. It's a, a wonderful practice for us to, to do, at least at times. Uh, one of the things that it does for us is it helps us to, in a disciplined way, see the cohesiveness of the story of God laid out in the scripture. And there is no better time to do that than at Christmas. No richer uh, thing to see than, than what's happening at Christmas time. So if you're following along in your Bibles, which I would encourage, we'll be in Isaiah 63, and then Hebrews 2, and then Matthew 2. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Going to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, he was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are indebted to you in your giving us of your word, your scripture, and in your giving to us of your word, your son, Jesus Christ. And we remember that today and in this season. We ask that you would help our hearts and our minds to stay submitted to your word in every way. I ask that you would help my little words to somehow line up with your true word and anything that I say that doesn't would be forgotten and dismissed. We thank you, God. I thank you, God, that we can trust in your Holy Spirit to accomplish all of this work in us. Help us now, we pray, as we look to your scriptures, as we look to hear from you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you for this gift. Amen. Well, it's already been said a few times, but I was going to say Happy New Year. So, Happy New Year. I, I hope that, uh, that you will find Christ near to you in 2023. Um, and here we are in the first Sunday after Christmas. Uh, you probably know that the Christmas season in the church calendar is 12 days long. So, if you have been celebrating or partying or feasting or anything like that, you've got about four more days I don't know if that means you have a past the party or what that means exactly, but I would encourage you to keep it up if you, if you can keep it up. Maybe you've just been feasting a lot and you're like, I can't, I can't handle any more. And it is the new year, so you're supposed to keep up with those resolutions and things, right? But, uh, but this is a time for intentional contemplation. Uh, and if you haven't been doing that, that's okay. I would encourage you to do it the rest of this week. Contemplate uh, the magnificence of what has happened in God coming in human form to earth. And this is, uh, this is what we will consider together for the rest of, of this season that we call Christmas Tide. This is what we will start to consider uh, even more today looking at these passages. Um, so, you know, we, we Western evangelical Protestants broadly, we focus a lot on the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and rightly so. Don't think that I'm about to slight that. Uh, but one of the things that we can learn uh, from, from the early church, and really just from looking at scripture, is the importance and necessity of us focusing on the incarnation and really wondering what has happened here. I think that it is far too easy uh, in our westernized culture, in our commercial material culture, even if you don't like all that stuff, even if you don't like the glitter and the lights and, and all those things, it's just so easy to pass over. Maybe we spend some moments contemplating and appreciating, and then it's just gone. And it is sort of just gone in a lot of ways. I feel like Christmas is, like, done. Um, and so what we want to look at today is what it means uh, that Jesus has come in the flesh. So here we are, 
celebrating, encouraging you to celebrate. I'm not a great celebrator. I'm trying to celebrate in our own ways uh, Jesus Christ coming. And you might be, uh, I know we have a lot of kids in the room, you might be something like the Grinch. You might be kind of annoyed at best about all kinds of things about Christmas. You might be frustrated with things about it. You might be like Buddy the Elf. Who likes Buddy the Elf? I like Buddy the Elf. My kids have watched that movie like 10 times at least, just this year, just in the last month actually. So you might be like that and you're barely able to contain your, your joy and the merriment that you feel. You just can't help but celebrate. Uh, I wish that I could be more like you. Or you might be, you might be like Mary, uh, who we see particularly in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that says that she treasures all of these things up in her heart. Wherever you are on that spectrum of, of your experience in Christmas, we get to this passage in Matthew 2 about the killing of infants and toddlers. And we rightfully should pause and say, what's going on here? Um, you might have read through the Gospels enough to realize that this story isn't mentioned other places. We're not going to get into all of that. But it ought to give us pause uh, that such a, a horrendous thing has happened. And we might even say, why are we reading this at Christmas? What does this have to do with Jesus coming? And these are fair questions. Um, and we ought not to, of course, pass over challenging, uh, challenging passages. But this is what I think we tend to do, so I know it's what I tend to do in reading this passage in particular, is to say, okay, you know, the angel told them to leave. They got out just in the nick of time. Okay, they're in Egypt. The angel tells them, the coast is clear. Come back. And that's about how much thought I might normally give it, or you might normally give it. Uh, but these children, regardless of how many they were, are not forgotten 2,000 years ago, right? If you know anything about or pay any attention to the church calendar, this past Wednesday, it was Wednesday, was uh, the Feast of the Innocents, when the church commemorates the loss of these children. It was a horrific tragedy uh, enacted by King Herod. And so the next question might be something like, well, why did, why did Herod do this? Uh, and we see that answer in the previous chapter, right? So the wise men show up and they ask the king, hey, where's the new king? You see the irony here. And Herod was known to be a, a paranoid murderer, really. Had his own children killed and, and lots of other things. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves we'll see that in some sense, Herod's response is indicative of every human response to Jesus. What do I mean? What I mean is that uh, someone has, has said, many people have said perhaps, that when we're confronted with the truth about Jesus, we can only react in some sort of an extreme. So that extreme might look like um, anger or hate, frustration or defensiveness, or it might be something like merriment, love, relief, and pursuit. Now, I get that you and I are unlikely, I hope, unlikely to feel anger or hate toward Jesus. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, we have a little bit of this Herod in us. Don't you get frustrated in those particular moments where you sense that you don't have or you're reminded that you don't have all of the control in your own life or in your own home? Don't you get defensive when the kingship of Jesus encroaches on your own comfort? Can you think of moments like this in the past two weeks? Maybe you were annoyed that you had some relatives in your home. They might have been your own like parents or kids, people that you really love and enjoy. But did you have any of those moments? I'm not saying you're an awful person, okay? I'm not entirely equating you and I to Herod. Did you have uh, moments where you didn't want to go to a Christmas party, but you felt you should because of someone else or something bigger than yourself? I know I had moments like that. The truth is that these are the kinds of little annoyances, these are the kinds of little encroachments of the kingship of Jesus into our lives that plague us all year, not just at Christmas time. And if I'm being totally honest, I would like to have all of that control. I would like to have control over all of the things that I think and say. I would like to have control over what all of you think of me. I would like to have control over how much money I have, what my career path looks like, what, how the rest of my life will play out. I would like to be king. And I'm using the term king here because that's how we speak of Jesus. Ladies, you're not off the hook. I'm sorry. I know that you tend to be kinder and more thoughtful than us men. I know I'm married to a lady. Uh, but that's why I'm using the term king. I might say queen at some point in reference to you ladies. And the truth is that you all would like to be kings too, right? You uh, are pursuing your own kingship in some way or form. So that's a question I would pose to you is, is in what ways are you pursuing your own kingship? Maybe you have manipulated or deceived even your ways through relationships. It could be anyone from a coworker to a spouse. It could be a very close friend to a neighbor that you barely know because you care about what they think of you, right? You want them to have high or lofty views and opinions of you. I know I feel that way. I don't want to want that, but I do. And can we all confess that, that we are in some way looking after our own kingship through the manipulation and the workings of relationships. Maybe you're a very honest person. Maybe you're not manipulative. But maybe you just can't quite bring yourself to get out of that, that easy chair throne of yours. You can't quite bring yourself to get uncomfortable. Because what might happen if you subject yourself to the risk of going out, to going out of that comfortable uh, place, whether it be relationally at home, whether it be at school or at work or even at church. I know my lazy boy lifestyle isn't much to look at, but it sure does keep me comfortable. Maybe you're pursuing uh, kingship and control in your habits. You feel that you, you can't or won't give them up because they temper your anxiety, 
because they make you feel better about yourself, um, because they, again, uh, improve in your mind the way that other people might think about you. Maybe they just make you, your little habits, make you feel a little bit more in control when there is this massive, crazy world spinning around you. It might be the Instagram feed or the Facebook feed or whatever you call, I think it's feed, I know. Um, it could be the, the, you know, the next pint of ice cream or the next cigarette or the next drink or the next new pair of shoes or the next trip to the gym. Whatever it is for you, are you allowing those habits to comfort you and deceive you into believing that you have some sort of control that you do not actually have? How are you chasing that elusive sense of control through your choices and through your habits? My point is that, that you, like I, uh, like me, have no shortage of areas or ways in which you are pursuing uh, to squeeze your own scepter or to assume your own sovereignty. But maintaining that perceived power, you would surely stop short of killing innocent boys, right? Right? Yeah, that's not a joke. Um, what if you lived 2,000 years ago and you were on Herod's throne? What about two chapters from now when Jesus equates the anger that you and I hold against our brothers and our sisters with murder? The truth is that I would be a terrible king. The truth is that you would be a terrible king or queen. You know this. This is not a surprise to you. You know your own abuses. You know your own addictions. You know your own pride and your idolatry. You and I are not, if we're honest with one another, with ourselves, unaware of our own weaknesses. The question is, are we going to acknowledge these pitiful attempts to sit on the throne? Are we going to be like Herod and push forward in pursuing power no matter what the cost is? Or are we going to pause in this moment and allow something or someone else to break in? The good news, one of the, the good newses of the Christmas story is that Herod is a small part. Herod is a small part of the Christmas story. And like Herod, all of you little Herods, your kingdoms are little kingdoms. But what we're invited to see in all three of these passages, and indeed throughout all of time and scripture, is the big story, is the big kingdom. You may have noticed that in these three sections we read in Matthew, uh, that there were prophecies fulfilled. This is, this is not something unique to these three passages. We see it already in the previous chapters of Matthew. We see it throughout Matthew. We see it throughout scripture. That Jesus is the king who has come to fulfill all of the things from beginning to end. Like the people Israel, he is brought up out of Egypt. In the next two chapters of Matthew, he will pass through the waters and he will struggle in the wilderness. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is 
the true and better. He is the true and better Adam who passes the test in the garden. He is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to go to a place that he did not exactly know and in whom all of those promises to Abraham are fulfilled. Jesus is the new, uh, the true and better Isaac who was not only offered up by his father but was indeed sacrificed so that we might see that God loves us. He is the true and better Jacob who has taken up the struggle and absorbed the wound so that we can one day also take the name Israel. He is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the supreme ruler forgives those who hated him and mistreated him and sold him into slavery and instead uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who mediates between God and man a new and better covenant. Jesus is the true and better David who wins the victory over the giant of death and makes his own victory the victory of his people. Jesus is the true king who has not incrementally enlarged the kingdom of God, but has indeed spread it across the entire face of the earth. Jesus, the son who has come out of Egypt, is the true and better Passover lamb, perfect, innocent, and slain so that death might pass over you and me. Like Jacob, who was individually given the name Israel before it was passed along to, uh, to his sons and to their descendants, Jesus takes on the name of true Israel so that we can be called, as Paul writes, the Israel of God. But first, he had to come. Let's not be tempted to move too quickly again away from the incarnation, from the magnificence and the beauty and the, the universe-altering occurrence of Jesus coming into humanity. For, for most of its first thousand years, the church fathers were rightfully obsessed with understanding what was happening in the incarnation. Part of that is that they were closer. They were less far removed from what had actually happened. And part of this was that they, they understood that, that, that knowing and being able to put into words what had happened was going to help them to better understand everything else that has happened before and that will happen after. The early church fathers were, again, rightfully kind of obsessed with the incarnation. And in fact, Santa Claus himself was quite obsessed with the incarnation. I'm being only a little bit facetious there. At, I'll tell you a little bit of a story about that. At uh, the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, Arius, who you may not have heard of, but maybe you've heard of Arianism. It's one of the great heresies that's come out of the church. He had taken up the view that Jesus was in fact not God. He said that Jesus was created by God in order to show us basically how to live. 
So at the Council of Nicaea, he's, he's a, and he's an officer in the church, Arius is, at the Council of Nicaea, he's making this argument to all of the, the bishops and presbyters and maybe deacons of the churches. This is only in, in the, the 300s, okay? So it's a long time ago. And he is just being obstinate in his foolishness and in his argument. And he won't shut up. And he won't listen to reason. And so, St. Nicholas is also there, who is a bishop of the church in, in what's modern-day Turkey. And so Santa Claus walks over and slaps Arius. I love, I love that story. I can remember the first time that I read it. And it's, okay, it's not Santa Claus. It is the real saint or Bishop Nicholas, okay, from which all of that stuff grew. And I just, I love that, I love that picture in my mind of Santa Claus walking over and slapping Arius. But coming out of this, coming out of this council, we have the Nicene Creed, which we, uh, which we read and confess uh, at times together in our own church, and is really the only confessional document that the whole church, Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant, have agreed upon for the last 1,700 years. And in it, uh, it is largely about the two natures of Jesus. It is largely uh, brought about and focused on the fact that Jesus is, in fact, fully God and fully man. We confess that he was begotten of the Father before all time, that he is the only begotten Son, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And we say that it is for us men and for our salvation that he, I'm not reading the creed, that he, the creating and sustaining word, of God came into the world. It is for us and our salvation that he took on the flesh and blood of humanity in order that he might initiate this intimacy that God Almighty has always desired with his people. God has always desired to be close, not just with each of you individually, but with all of humanity for all of time. Isaiah has told us in this passage that we read today that it is the goodness of God which has been granted through his compassion and his steadfast love that has brought us close to him. He says, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. He doesn't mean, obviously, that you and I or the people of Israel would never deal falsely. We see it everywhere. Again, in our social media feeds or in our, uh, the political conversations on our news feeds, we see it everywhere in the biblical story that you and I and all of humanity will repeatedly and persistently act falsely. What he means is that once you and I understand, once his people understand that they have been adopted as his children, we will not deal falsely. Therefore, Isaiah writes, he became their savior. Well, if we wouldn't deal falsely by our nature, then we wouldn't have needed a savior, right? 
but such is the love of God for us, that he who created all things and is over and above all things, who needs nothing, who requires nothing in and of himself from us, condescends to come into the womb of a woman, to be born a crying and messy baby, to be exiled into Egypt and then to end up in the backwoods part of Israel in Nazareth. He was without sin and yet partook in all of the things that you and I have, in our flesh and blood, in our worry, in our suffering, and in our death. He did all of this to save us and to prove to us his solidarity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, the line says. That he might free us, as we read in Hebrews, from the fear and the slavery and the death that come with our own little kingdoms. And if you're here today, you are like Herod, just like I am, and everyone else. And we are guilty of seeking our own kingship. In so doing, we have thought terrible thoughts, we have said terrible things, and we have committed terrible actions, treasonous against the one true God. We are guilty of treating Jesus in this day and age as if he is someone simply to be liked. We are so um, obsessed with... uh, with entertainment, we are so overstimulated that we almost think Jesus is, is that like button. But when we hear that someone says they like Jesus or they regard him as a great guy or a fantastic teacher or anything like this, that person has not heard the claims of Jesus. Jesus is not an idea on Twitter or Facebook for you or I to like. The claims made about him from the prophets of old, by himself, by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures, are neither asking for nor allowing us to simply like Jesus. Our emotions, our thoughts have been so often dumbed down that they are more stirred by the outcomes of a, a college football playoff game or how many shares we get on social media, or career achievements, or money in the bank. We are more stirred by the exercise that we get than we are stirred by the truth that the God of the universe embraced humanity fully in becoming a baby boy. When you're encountered with the truth of the incarnation, A non-response is really not an option. Uh, You and I must respond, and sometimes that might be to extremes. But what we'll find again and again is that our best responses, our own personal versions of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that the wise men brought, are insufficient. And so we might ask again, How can I bring enough? How can I give enough? How can I love Jesus enough? 
And the truth is that you cannot, you cannot give to Jesus, the king of the universe, what you really owe him. But the good news, as one of my professors used to say, is that all of the salvific arrows, all of the arrows of salvation point downward from heaven to earth. That what you and I have owed has been taken care of for us. What you and I as mankind owed God, we could never pay him because we already owed him everything as our creator and sustainer. And so God, as with having the only ability to make a propitiation, to make amends in that relationship, had to come, had to become this God-man, Jesus Christ. Christmas is about the incarnation. The crib was necessary that the cross might come. And as you bear your own cross of loneliness, of shame or guilt or despair, of loss, of cancer, of dementia, the list never ends. As you bear your own cross, you are invited to see that in the incarnation, God has taken up solidarity with you and your suffering. Your own flesh and blood, your own human nature testifies to you that Jesus has taken up a stand with you. He stands above you and behind you and before you and beside you, but he stands with you because he loves you. In the incarnation, the almighty God lives out the intimacy that he has always desired with his people. So today, you are called to look at this Christmas. You are called to look at least for the next four days at the birth of Jesus and see that indeed he stands with you. And that this, as we look forward from now, January 1st of 2023, this is our hope for the new year and indeed the hope for the rest of our lives. That the God of the universe has come down has become flesh and blood like you because he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you so much and we are so grateful for what you have done not what you needed to do, but what we needed you to do, what all of humanity and indeed all of creation needed you to do, Jesus, was to come into it, to assume it, that you would set it right from the beginning to the end and beyond. God, so great is your love for us and your creating us and you're sustaining us. You have always wanted to be close with us. And you have done so in a way that our feeble minds and our prideful kingships could never have conceived. 
you came and made little of yourself that we might actually see how great you are. I pray for everyone who can hear my voice in this room or anywhere else. Jesus, that you would be close to them today and in 2023 and for the rest of their lives. That their flesh and blood would testify to them of your greatness and of your nearness and of your solidarity with their sorrows. We thank you for becoming the propitiation for us. We thank you for bearing our burdens and our sorrows and our grief in your own life. We pray only now, Lord, that you would make us more and more faithful. And we trust you, Jesus. And we love you. We are so thankful for your Holy Spirit, which guides us and assures us daily that you are indeed doing all of this work. We look forward to your return. We love you. Amen.